This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, welcome to Speaker for the Living. I'm Seth there. I'm here with JJ Genflone, and we're going to talk about some of the recent executive orders. We're finally getting to a few of these we've been wanting to get to, those from January 25th. Uh, first one is border security and immigration Im- enforcement improvements. The other one mm-hmm. is enhancing public safety in the interior of the United States. What do you think, JJ? I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm excited we finally got to the point where we get to sort of talk about these executive orders and how they impact human trafficking directly, but I feel like we've touched on ways that they impact human trafficking already with our presentations that we've that have been published on like marginalization, trafficking, soft power, and how all these two things in our how all these things sort of interact in two spheres, both like the reality of human trafficking law and then what people who are vulnerable are likely to interpret this law as. So I'm sort of excited now to, to at least tackle this now that I feel like we've adequately covered the back work. Aliens or many aliens who illegally enter the United States without inspection or admission present a significant threat to national security and public safety. So that is a framing idea for both of these executive orders. Mm-hmm. And I could also add, it's, it just, it's disputable whether that's true. It depends what data. Certainly, there are people who have committed crimes. It's not out of the realm of reason for a terrorist to cross illegally, although the vast majority come in legally. But the fact that there were at least will be some threats is understandable. And so I'm disputing the number, but that is important to these executive orders. It's like there are threats, we need to, to keep them out. And so we need to have better enforcement. And I think one of the things that not just us, lots of people are struggling with is what that enforcement actually looks like or what that enforcement will look like, how that enforcement will be funded. What is the training given to these officers? Because that, even more so than the language of the order, you know, how the boots on the ground are provided for and trained and sort of what they view their mission as, that's going to be, I think, what has more of a determination on the reality of human trafficking law in the U.S., the, the really bad analogy that I tend to use when I'm talking to students about this is think about how on your mattress, every mattress you've ever, you've ever bought or purchased or every pillow has that little message on the tag that like if you remove this, there are severe penalties, you know. And of course you just rip it off because who has ever been sued for removing the tag off their mattress? It's, it's like reading iTunes agreements. No one actually does it. So while it's there, no one actually follows it. Or if they do follow it, they follow a a very sort of permissive interpretation of it. And so I think that's going to be 
what's interesting here is that if this rolls out, how it rolls out, you know, what what is the internal feeling about it? That's what's going to set, I, I personally feel, how, how refugees or illegal aliens are actually treated in the U.S. or how they perceive themselves to be treated. And these two executive orders, uh, neither of them directly apply to refugees. Mm-hmm. True. Asylees are part of it. And to clarify once again, people who make it to our border, they ask for asylum rather than going through the refugee system where they begin at a camp or you know, essentially begin in, in another country and end up here through the UN refugee system. Yes. But once they're started, they're asked some of the same types of questions. So in a sense, they're very similar, but different programs. Both yes. need both need a well-founded fear. In their home country, they are afraid of political or religious or a few other types of persecution uh, where they might have been persecuted in the past or tortured or they're part of a certain like religious minority groups who's been persecuted. And so people can go and trace back what's happened. Mentioning that for a reason, which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, another one of these setup sections of the border security executive order is this uh, quote, transnational criminal organizations operate sophisticated drug and human trafficking networks and smuggling operations on both sides of the southern border, contributing to a significant increase in violent crime in the United States deaths from dangerous drugs. Among those who enter illegally, who illegally enter are those who seek to harm Americans through acts of terror or criminal conduct. Continued illegal yes. immigration presents a clear and present danger to the interest of the United States. So there's multiple things here to point out. Once the border became more militarized, reports are that cartels got more interested in the smuggling routes for people because they could make more money because it became more expensive. Right now, cartels or other transnational criminal organizations, they are getting drugs into the country. They are getting people into the country. The degree to which they're doing human trafficking networks, yes, they are involved. But if we tomorrow were to eliminate the uh, TCO for short, transnational criminal organizations, if we eliminated them from human trafficking that would not end human trafficking into the United States. Individuals do it. People of all races do it. This is more pervasive than just dealing with big criminal organizations. Also, this one sentence that those who enter illegally among those are people who seek to harm through acts of terror or criminal conduct. Certainly, there is criminal conduct and there is drug violence in the United States from these groups. Acts of terror, I still have yet to see proven. The only example I'm currently aware of is the when Hezbollah tried to work with a cartel the one time. And that doesn't mean it isn't a possibility or a threat to consider. It is. But as of yet, it's still not the main concern. Well, and bear in mind, too, for, for people who 
I would say that for everyone who's coming in, who's participating in the drug trade or participating in drug-related violence, you're also dealing with people who are fleeing that in their home country. And so I think a lot of sort of the confusion about the sort of people who are coming into the U.S. is sort of a fundamental confusion about why it is that they're coming, which we've touched on. Yeah, and uh, one thing it would be good to talk about, and maybe you might know this a little bit better, are the the P's of human trafficking. As uh, some people have pointed out, some human trafficking organizations anti-human trafficking organizations that this is highly and all of these executive orders are highly prosecution focused mm-hmm. which is essential to dealing with human trafficking but it's not the only important angle exactly and i think one of one of the things that it touches on just really quickly is that when you're dealing with the three p's of human trafficking which I feel like we've talked about briefly before, but maybe not enough in depth, are prosecution, protection, and prevention. So literally three Ps. And that's the sort of fundamental framework that is used around the world to combat human trafficking, but is certainly the one that the U.S. has pushed. Um, and you see this reflected in the language that they use in things like the TVPA the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which was initially passed in 2000 and then has had like a number of amendments and additions added on to it. So when you're dealing with the idea of prosecution, it's does, if you're arrested for a crime related to your human trafficking, not you trafficking another person, but say that you've been trafficked to work on a begging team and you're arrested for loitering or if you've been brought into the country with the intention that they're going to use you to steal okay so ideally if you can prove you've been trafficked you shouldn't be arrested or or charged with these crimes because you weren't acting with a full free choice of the will here right But a lot of times that's tied to this prosecution point, which is they need you then as a victim to testify in order for the the criminal, the person who trafficked you, to get a maximum sentence. Which, by the way, I would like to point out the maximum sentence in the U.S. for trafficking in persons is at least four years. Four years does not seem like a lot to me. And most people get about one year or more. And so when we're talking about the prosecution point of the three Ps, it is supposed to be prosecution of the trafficker, but a lot of times what ends up happening, unfortunately, is we do have sort of the side prosecution of the victim in order to get them to testify. Or in some cases, and we can link the the news story for you below, because there's no social services available for the victim. And so jail time or entering into some sort of court mandated program might be sort of the only option available to local law enforcement. Well, in the protection side of uh, human trafficking, which 
can involve the three R's, rescue, rehabilitation, and reintegration. We like our acronyms. That is almost entirely lacking from these executive orders, with the exception of unaccompanied children. And even then, it looks like they're trying to find a way to mitigate or lessen that. There's been children who may be connected to uh, families in the United States uh, who may have come here illegally. They get smuggled, and we have policies to address that, to get them connected to their families. Does that sound correct, JJ? That's exactly it, and that is why I, I did the suggestion of what the likelihood is of how this actually plays out in the real world. But there is a total lack of talking about adult victims and how there will be victim identification or anything like that. And that sort of leads me to my my other concern is that there... So the executive order calls on the DHS the DHS secretary to quote, immediately construct, operate, control, or establish contracts to detain aliens at or near the land border with Mexico and to quote, take all appropriate actions to ensure the detention of aliens apprehended for violation of immigration law. The problem that I see here is depending on how this plays out in action, you could see people who are attempting to seek asylum, not get that opportunity, even though they've hit the U.S. to claim asylum, even if they have a valid asylum claim. And the second concern that I have is that anytime you increase immigration detention, you increase the likelihood of picking up people who are trafficking victims as purely immigration criminals and then them being held in a system where they have no access out um, or to get assistance. And so that's the problem that I have currently. One of one of the many problems I have with this, but just on the human trafficking end, is that any time you up detention, you up the chances of criminal prosecution of people who would be asylum seekers or who would be able to be granted asylum under the protections laid out in the TVPA. Mm-hmm. And people who are being trafficked are the people who are not going to ask for asylum at the point of the border. People who are being trafficked, there's primarily two scenarios. One, they're being trafficked or under control as they're being crossed and they're told to follow a script or told what to do. Or they're just trying to be smuggled. And so, yes, they are breaking immigration law where they're willfully trying to do that but then as soon as they cross then they're given over to somebody and they realize that they're in a situation they that we would consider human trafficking but they just might see as confusing or undesirable and human trafficking is complicated that way as people don't always know they're being trafficked immediately and so people being aware of knowing what to look for how to identify human trafficking Like we've looked at the tip of report for many years and one of the things that we try to highlight with each country is what type of processes and training do they have for victim identification for people that they arrest or otherwise detain. 
and it would be nice to know that the new administration is thinking about that. We don't know that they, that they aren't thinking about it, but we don't know that they are. Well, and then it becomes the even if, because again, we're not getting our, our listing of how this will be implemented. And to mm -hmm. be fair, it's, it's, it's normally quite rare in executive orders for there to be sort of the sort of the deep policy dive that we're asking for in here. It's just that normally in the rhetoric surrounding when the executive order is signed, we do get that. So what we're seeing here is that we're not getting an explanation of how this will play out, what are the methods that are going to be used, and really even to the terms of who is funding it and how is it going to be funded, you know, what is going where. So one of the things, too, that pops in is that when you have more asylum seekers turned back or who have their cases processed outside the U.S., even if they are victims of trafficking, what we increase is the likelihood of these people then being extra vulnerable to criminal and trafficking groups. Because say you are someone who was attempting to leave Mexico to come into the U.S., you're fleeing cartel violence, okay? So you take a job as a domestic servant um, for a household in the U.S. You come in illegally, and then they take your documentation. So you've been trafficked once you enter the U.S. and you no longer have the freedom of movement. You go to the police. You report to the police that you are a trafficking victim, but you're also here illegally. There is the possibility then that you could be deported back to Mexico while you wait for your asylum claim to be processed and also while you wait for the criminal trial to proceed. This can be super dangerous, right? Because not only have you returned to the place that you were fleeing, but you've returned to a place where the cartel that you were initially fleeing or that you were trafficked through now knows that you were pursuing legal, shall we say, um, avenues to prosecute them. So what's the likelihood that, that even if your asylum claim is processed and you're granted in the U.S., that you make it back to the U.S.? And so this is, this is sort of the fundamental problem here where it gets super complicated and where you start to see, we ask this question all the time, why why is it that people come into the country and then hide or why are trafficking victims unlikely to go to the police well this is part of the reason is that they're more afraid of the police in some cases valid or not than they are of their traffickers the other concern that i have and this is pointed out by the women's refugee commission they work out of new york city they're wonderful. I'll, I'll include the memo that they've posted that I'm taking a fair bit of this from for y'all below. Is that just the idea of more immigration restrictions have demonstrably been shown to force people in general, asylum seekers, desperate to reach safety underground into the hands of traffickers. 
So a lot of people who do actually seek protection and asylum at the U.S. border are put into border territory while they're held, while their asylum claims are being held. And actually, Vice has a really good documentary on this about being sort of in this weird limbo at the border territory that has high rates of homicide, high rates of theft, things like that. So when you have an executive order that says the danger posed by drug and human trafficking networks and smuggling operations will be fixed by an immigration restriction, what you instead see then are people trying to get around this detention by getting further into the U.S. before claiming asylum. And how do you do that? You do it by getting further into the country, by skipping this border. How do you skip this border? You're trafficked. You, you participate in smuggling. And maybe this is a good moment to explain smuggling of humans and trafficking of humans is different. If I have a best friend and I need him to get from Mexico into the U.S. and I put him in my trunk and I bring him into the United States, that's smuggling. I've, I've moved him across the border. If, however, once we get to the U.S., I'm like, hey, now that you're here, I'm going to need you to work for me 20 hours a day in this factory, and if you don't, I'm going to turn you into the police, and also you owe me $5,000 or I'll cut your finger off. Trafficking. Okay? A lot of times they work together, but not always uh, in concert. So... When you say that by stopping human smuggling, you're going to stop human trafficking, that's not entirely true. Instead, what you're just doing is increasing the likelihood that people are going to go to these criminal networks rather than pursuing legal channels or just going up to the border and claiming asylum. And so this is a boon. If, if I were in the business of human trafficking, I would be looking at this this new order as an employment opportunity because people are going to want to travel. And if tomorrow we somehow were able to eliminate all illegal entry into the country and uh, JJ and I having studied it, we're of the opinion that you can never have a hundred percent prevention of people getting into this country illegally. It's too big a country, but let's say that you could, People are also trafficked through legal points of entry. People are given scripts. They may or may not know what's waiting for them on the other side. They might say, well, yeah, this is my daughter. This is, I'm coming for this purpose. And so they get through the, a legal process and they're trafficked. That's happened before. So, so there's that. Uh, but I'm going to go a little more into asylum and I'm also going okay. to point some of you to a a podcast that, that was uh, on This American Life where they went and they interviewed a member of the Border Patrol. There's this point where it's easy to get from Mexico at this point. So there apparently are still one or more locations where you can cross where it's not arduous. There are also places where it's arduous and you risk running out of water or dying. In this particular one, now as as people try to get into Canada, (laughs) freezing to death. Yeah, Canada. Uh, We we know somebody who went through that process in Canada. So uh, 
The Border Patrol guy says there's about 500 people who try to cross there, and in this case, somebody did. I believe it was a parent and a child, and they were requesting asylum. And so his point was, well, I want to get the bad guys. I, I, you know, I'll welcome these people. I'll give them water and be nice to them, but this isn't what I signed up to do. Mm-hmm. And so then they went brought them in and he figures that they probably had a hearing set up and would be released hence catch and release and one of the issues is we have limited detention space we'll go deeper into detention in a future episode and and the fuzziness and weirdness of that whole system but that's one of the issues is there's only so much space another issue and uh, this is one that is pointed out in an article with uh, Ellen Burson, who was uh, Bill Clinton's border czar. As he points out, we just don't have enough funding or resources in the immigration court system to give to get people processed and to get their claims processed. And we've had like 100,000 total asylum requests in, I think it was 2015, that our system is overwhelmed. And some of these claims are legitimate. Some people might perceive are legitimate because if you're worried for your life or you just have it really rough in your country, maybe to you it's a valid reason to try to get into the U.S. Maybe to our, our system it isn't. We have to be able to validate it. Do we have enough information to believe that this person has a well-founded fear? When we go through the system, court dates can be set off by years at this point. And so if they go to their court date, which they don't always, they've already established themselves, they're living here. So this is something we need to come up with a way to better address. Now with the normal system, people go and they can have people come in and do expert testimonies or research. I helped with this. I created a report for a country. I had a narrative that a person submitted from an interview. So I looked at the history of the country, did research, looked at human rights reports, looked at the dates, and I put down whether this was a plausible narrative. Now, I spent many hours doing that in order to put it forth an expert testimony. Uh, There's also multiple interviews and other things that they go through. In other words, this is not a one-time event multiple people can be involved. You can have representation being involved in order to determine whether there's a well-founded fear. And if I didn't research that country, or if I didn't know that country, it would be harder to determine whether it's even plausible. So in the leaked memo, which mentioned the National Guard, which the White House has denied and a DHS person has said is an early draft, so it's I'll take it with a grain of salt, But that memo was based on the border security executive order, and it gives more details. And so in the memo, it said, well, we need to deal with all these asylum requests. We think it's being abused. And so we're going to have an asylum officer at the point of being detained after they're apprehended is going to interview them and make a determination of whether their well-founded fear claim is even plausible in order to be processed through the court system, the immigration court system. Now, I don't have enough details to judge that, and it is an approach to try to deal with how many people have come in, but then I have concerns wondering whether 
they're going to properly train people so that they're not just making judgment calls. This person doesn't seem honest, so I'm not going to let them in. Or, or they're going to have a system where they say, we're going to have asylum officers who are experts in, say, Guatemala or Honduras, who understand the language, who understand the culture, so that when they listen to this person, they can sense what would be normal. That's the training preparation side of just asylum. That also is one of the big issues with human trafficking. Do people have training for identification? Do they know how to address victims? Do they understand the complexity of human trafficking? And as well-meaning as many law enforcement people are, they don't always have the specific investigation preparation to deal with human trafficking, nor do they always have the training for identification. And when we're going to hire a bunch of new people, that's something that should be addressed. And again, it's one of those things where, as we've said a lot, it's it's people trying to do the best they possibly can. You know, I don't think anyone necessarily is, is doing this to be, or is taking these jobs with the intention to be cruel or the intention of, of not giving victims their proper due. I think it's just honestly a matter of these things are jobs. They're nine to five positions and you can only do what you've been trained to do. And what you've been trained to do has a lot to deal with like the funding available or what the sort of aims of the organization that you're working for actually are. One of the things that gets me is that when we're talking about the, the, the part of the order that's enhancing public safety in the interior of the United States via singling out aliens that have been convicted of criminal offenses mm -hmm. or those who've been charged with any criminal offense where such a charge has not been resolved, I think directly is going to impact human trafficking victims who have committed a crime, say prostitution, when they themselves have been victims of sex trafficking. And something I know from kind of working directly with victim services or really anyone that's worked in any sort of social work field that does direct services is that this is also a thing that takes time. It takes time for people to be willing to tell strangers, particularly strangers in law enforcement, what victimhood looks like. It takes a long time for victims to recognize that they themselves are survivors. It's a very hard thing for some people to admit that they've been coerced or frauded or forced to do a thing um, that they wouldn't have otherwise done. It's difficult. It's hard. It's psychologically quite rigorous, let alone if you have any like physical side effects. So this idea of that immediately upon acknowledgement of your immigration status that you'll be deported or moved to detention center is really bad because a lot of people that slowly over time after they've built up a trust with law enforcement official will come clean about their situation. I'm afraid that that's not going to happen because simply that time and that attention isn't there. The public safety executive force order also lists many different criteria of somebody who's removable. JJ mentioned one of them, which was if criminal offense were charged, it's not resolved. There's others have committed acts that constitute a chargeable criminal offense. The last one, in the judgment of an immigration officer, otherwise pose a risk to public safety or national security. Laws have this challenge of, on one hand, you like detail because it limits the abuse of a law, but flexibility can be helpful because reality does not always align with what people writing a law are thinking about. So it comes back to implementation. So people could apply this and it could go smooth and it could be fair and they could, quote, get the worst ones or it could potentially be abused and they could apply it broadly mm -hmm. and an immigration officer could just say, I think you're a threat. 
so I'm going to deport you. So whether this is going to be flexible or abused, don't know, but it's written broadly enough that it could be abused. Or some people would like everyone illegally to be out tomorrow, so in their mind it wouldn't be abused, it would be fair. Yeah, that's right. Like, I, I think the unintentional abuses, or like the indifferent abuses, are far more likely, God, I hope anyway, far more likely than intentional ones. But that doesn't change anything for the people who are experiencing it. And we really should note that uh, the border security one does mention the wall. Mm. The wall was initially provisioned in the Secure Fence Act, and uh, we now have 702 miles of wall. It's interesting, the border security agent from the This American Life interview, he was excited about being listened to. Finally, there's somebody running for office and now president who talked to them and listened to them, and that's why they endorsed him as a candidate. But about the wall, like he said... And when we initially put up the wall, it was 18 feet, and then people just brought a bunch of 19-foot ladders. So he actually admits that he doesn't know if the wall is going to happen, and he doesn't seem all that thrilled about it. And he's at the border. Well, and I think it's one of those things where I want to be clear, and I think, I Seth, I don't know your feelings on it, but as someone who's who's lived inside the U.S. and now and outside the U.S. and kind of traveled pretty extensively, you know, the U.S.'s immigration policies for the most part are quite good i've i've gone and traveled to places where it's been really opaque and not really clear what it is you have to do i've been in places where it's just the assume particularly in east asia where it's just assumed that you have to bribe a border official even if everything you're doing is legal just because in order to get in it's just a thing that you have to do. It's it's considered normal. So modifications to U.S. immigration policy to streamline it or to reflect the sort of increasing needs of people in the world to come to the U.S., I'm fine with that. That I don't have an issue with. It's the method in which this has panned out that seems like it's been panned out without a lot of forethought as to how this will harm, not help people. No, I basically agree with that. I'm not opposed to having more wall. And if we have a wall, then we have a wall. Then I think it's something that's really expensive that isn't fully necessary. That's more the way I view the wall. We probably should have some more sections up. But it runs into that some of this is on private land. There are some people who where the government would have to apply eminent domain. Some people on the border don't really think the wall is a great thing. And there are some people who, who do. But it's not this universal good feeling at the border. It's not something where it's going to be easy at every place to put it because of the Rio Grande River. And then you have kind of how the border extends into the United States and border agents extend, like, I forget if it's 100 miles or whatever the mileage is. It's not simple, but if we have it, then we have it, and it still will come down to patrol. And there's certainly, as I've already mentioned, the immigration asylum process at the southern border, something needs to change with that. So it's a matter of how it's changed. And with all of this together, how it's talked about, how it's dealt with. So this is more about rhetoric and implementation and how well thought out the law is and whether it includes everything that's necessary that to deal with the issue. Does it consider why people are coming here? Does it consider the economics of crossing? Does it consider protection and victim identification? Because a comprehensive policy that's trying to solve the issue should. And this looks more like a hammer approach 
when there's other tools that are really necessary to address the problem. And it's hard not to be apprehensive about these executive orders and how this might be implemented. So those are the main things I wanted to say. Yeah, I feel like I've kind of adequately laid out my sort of major concerns. The The only other thing I would add in is the penalizing of sanctuary cities, mm-hmm. counties or states, just because I don't think we've really touched on those. But just that, again, human trafficking and human trafficking funding tends to get lumped in with other service provisions. Because as Seth and I have talked about, it's this idea of, you know, to really get a human trafficking, you got to look at poverty elimination and the ending of sort of mass vulnerabilities of marginalized peoples. And so a lot of times cities will, for, for example, in, in Denver, you know, it's a homeless shelter, but it has provisions in it if there are victims of human trafficking that come into the shelter. And so they receive dual funding, if that, if that makes sense, and kind of gets at the intersectionality of a lot of these vulnerable peoples. But what worries me about the penalizing of these sanctuary cities is that not only is funding going to be cut to anti-human trafficking efforts, it's that these cities that have vowed to limit their cooperation with federal immigration authorities are now then going to have federal funds withheld that go to vulnerable populations. And so if you're eliminating funding going to a vulnerable population, as I think we've kind of laid out as, as best we can in previous podcasts, the chances of human trafficking going up in that area are high because the main cause of human trafficking beyond, you know, one human being's desire to subjugate another human being's, you know, life and dignity is the vulnerability of that person that ups their likelihood to be trafficked. And so just that taking away of funding makes me a little anxious. And I think that's something that we're going to see the ripple effects of far more pervasively and, and far more quickly than we will, I think, from from border policy. I think we're going to get a lot of really sad anecdotes and reflections of people who this border policy is affecting. But I think on a bigger way, we, we are going to see a huger way, if you will, huge. Uh, we're going to see, I think, automatically in the house. Well, there's an article that I found from the Texas Tribune that I shared yesterday about a teenager who had uh, multiple pimps and had sounds like a rough life and they had identified her as a sex trafficking victim because if you're a teenager and involved in commercial sex transactions and you're below the age of 18 you can be considered a sex trafficking victim and in this case this girl there were a lack of services or at least adequate services so she ended up in prison for a time Not so much as a prisoner, but she was in prison because there was nowhere else to go. So when we talk about the problem of human trafficking, and as we've said, child sex trafficking or teenage sex trafficking is the one that gets the funding, that has the attention. And even then, here's a story of somebody for whom there are not adequate services to address people who are survivors or who have been, quote, rescued. So whenever you see an article that talks about somebody being rescued, great. But that's not the end of the story. It doesn't mean it's solved. After that, what's happening? And we need more attention to that. And so when JJ mentions that we may have less funding for services, this is 
a real problem. And maybe it doesn't have to be through funding relating to sanctuaries, but we need funding to provide services for uh, survivors of human trafficking and related crimes. Amen, Seth. Sometime soon, we will address a more recent executive order, which is called Enforcing Federal Law with Respect to Transnational Criminal Organizations and Preventing International Trafficking, which entails both drug and human trafficking. That was on February 9th, along with three other executive orders. But soon after this one is, this particular podcast is published, reportedly we'll have a new version of the visa ban, refugee ban suspension order. Version two, the sequel. Yay, we'll look forward to that. We, we do sequels here. We're all about the sequels. Mm-hmm. And we'll try to keep up uh, going forward with the executive orders. It's uh, we, you know, we were initially looking at, well, we should have an episode on policy in the Trump era after doing one on the Obama era. And then there's just a lot. Executive orders and we're doing the congested airports and what have you. So if there's anything you'd like us to look deeper into, let us know. Yeah, and as always, send us a message uh, on here on the website or you can tweet me. I'm at Jillian Dime. J-I-L-L-I-A-N-D-U-Y-M. And I publish on Twitter when we're filming these podcasts and then when they are released as well. So if you've got any questions, send me send me a little message. All right. Later. Until next time. All right. Bye, everybody. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.